Hi there team, um, this is another one of those Instagram live sessions that I'm doing. Um, basically, it's just me, Raw, talking on Instagram, at coffee and a case note. Come join the fun there if you'd like to, uh, every Wednesday at 8pm for the next few weeks. Cheers, bye. Hello there team, um, it is great to have your company. And Hang on, I'm just going to close this door. Let's do that, let's make that happen. <clears throat> so... We are, g'day Alexander, thank you for the love, heart, eyes in the comments section. Oh, thanks to everyone for joining in. Um, team, tonight, oh, thank you King Jimbo, let me give you a wave. Oh, thank you Super Lawyer Lawrence, thank you Aaron Bruin. Gosh, it's nice to see everyone uh, coming in, great to see you all, thank you. Um, so, what are we doing? Uh, we're going to have a chat tonight, and we're going to have a chat about uh, a piece of legislation called the Conveyancing Act, a section called Section 66G. Uh, and what we're also doing is we are recording. So if there's anyone who has to leave or anyone who can't stay for the whole session, don't worry at all. Um, I'm recording this on the podcast. So if you don't get a chance to uh, be a part of the whole thing, the podcast is called Coffee and a Case Note. You'll be able to find it on whatever podcast provider you like. And uh, you'll be able to check back in on what you missed. Um, so it's isn't it great news? It's exciting. Um, so Lawrence, in the comments there, who's only here briefly, that's your homework. Um, you're welcome to go and enjoy the rest of your night and you can catch up on the podcast. Um, to everyone aside from Lawrence, who's going to be here uh, for the duration or, or at least part of the duration, we're probably going to start in about two or three minutes. Um, and so long as we're doing housekeeping, I'm going to pour myself a glass of uh, a sort of reasonable, this is a blended whiskey, a reasonable single malt. It's sort of the the cheapest of the whiskies at David Jones, um, which is probably a fairly accurate way to describe it and think about it. Hello there, Jay Woodland. Lawrence is off to look up the Proceeds of Crime Act, so he's got some serious stuff to do. Hello there, Michael. Good to see you. Thanks to everyone for joining in. Um, so, back on housekeeping, we're going to start the speech proper in about a minute and a half, two minutes from now. Um, if you are watching on Instagram Live uh, as we're doing this, what I would be grateful for is if you've got questions, just chuck them in the comments below or push that little question mark thing just there um, and I can go answer those questions and if you're happy enough to make a comment or to let me know how your evening's going um, why not leave a comment saying what drink you're enjoying I'm having a nice little whiskey here so cheers to you and um, cheers to young Rachel who's just joined us there hello Rachel um, and we will start in a moment or two so if anyone's having something fun to drink please let me know cup of tea glass of water some kombucha anything like that This is all right. This is okay. It's it's not as nice as the whiskey we had last week, but don't worry. It's going to be a great talk. Um, Michael's having green tea. Good to see. Good to hear. Team, let's get started. I've called this talk, uh, Let's Get Someone Else to Sell It. Uh, we're going to be talking about Section 66G of the Conveyancing Act, Statutory Trustees for Sale. 
And if all that sounded like blah, 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 gobbledygook, don't worry. I'm fairly good at explaining these things and it's going to make sense as we work through the chat. So um, what happens if you and I are co-owners of a property, but we don't get along and we don't agree on how that property should be put to use? As you can imagine, that can seem like an almost impossible problem. Hello there, Shani. Thanks for joining us. Um, But Section 66G and its corollary sections in different jurisdictions can step in to save the day. And um, we're going to go through the mechanics in some depth a little later on. But essentially what Section 66G does is it stops you and I from being the co-owners of the property. It turns uh, someone else, someone independent, into the new owner of the property or owners. And Jesse's joining us. Jesse's a very good vet of about 10 or 11 years experience and he's really going to enjoy a chat about Section 66G, uh, but he's good on whiskey as well. Jesse, I'm drinking this, which seems okay. Like, um, it's all right. Um, and so the mechanic for Section 66G is that you and I are the owners, the registered proprietors of a piece of property. Okay, shiny. And what happens is we stop being owners, we come down to become beneficiaries, and some new parties come in as the new owners. And those new parties, the new owners, are the trustees for sale. What they have to do is go sell our property, get the money in. They've got to go pay the costs of uh, sale of the property, and then they pay back whatever's left over to you and me. Right? You and me stop being owners. Some new people come in and are the owners. They sell the property, pay out the costs, give us the money. It's going to work. And Ralford's here. Hello there, Ralford. And hello there, M Shark DG. And Ralford and I might have had a Section 66G matter together, Ralford, unless um, my memory fails me. But um, speaking broadly, if we're talking about the difficulty of you and I being co-owners together, thanks to everyone for joining in, being co-owners together uh, and not being able to get along, the categories of possible co-owners are fairly broad. But uh, what we tend to bump into when we're looking through this stuff is you often find parties who are or were formerly married, who are or were formerly beneficiaries of a deceased estate, or who are or were formerly commercial people who had purchased real property with a view to profit. And so, tonight, we're going to work through how Section 66G goes about solving uh, the problems that these co-owners may bump into. The talk is going to be in three sections. Firstly, we are going to talk about... G'day, Shane. Thanks for joining us. Firstly, we're going to talk about the law. It's going to be a bit of a crunchy technical chat. It's going to be a bit boring. That'll take about 12 or 15 minutes. Um, After that, we're going to talk about some examples, some decided cases that will sort of allow us to put a bit of a bit of uh, practical meat on those legal bones, so we get a bit more of an understanding of how this stuff works when the rubber hits the road. And then after that, the third section, I'm going to make just a couple of suggestions for you in your practice or for you in your co-ownership uh, life together um, to bear in mind when you're thinking about this stuff. As we go through, if anyone needs to jump out, as I might have said, I'm recording this for the podcast, which is called Coffee and a Case Note. So if you need to jump out and have more fun than chatting about the Conveyancing Act, that is fine. 
Um, apart from that, I want to know what you're drinking. I'm drinking a fairly okay, um, apparently single malted whiskey that's fairly straightforward and not particularly exciting. Uh, I don't know if you're having a green tea or if you're having some kombucha or if you're having some Earl Grey or if you're having a glass of wine or however your night's treating you, let me know and then we'll get into the law. Okay. Let's get into it. How does a section 66G order work? Let's remind ourselves, speaking in broad brush strokes of what we already know. You and I are the legal owners of a piece of property. The 66G order transforms us, as it were, from being legal owners into beneficiaries, and it brings in new independent people to become the new legal owners. And these new independent people are trustees and they are the legal owners of the property and they hold the property for our benefit because we're the beneficiaries of this trust, right? Their job as trustees is to sell the property, get that money in, pay out the costs and get the rest back to us. We used to be the owners, get some new owners, they'll sell it for us, they'll give us back the money net of costs. And net of costs is uh, our three words that we're going to linger on a little bit tonight, especially when we work through some of the examples. James, thanks for joining us. Dylan, thanks for joining us. Uh, you'll be pleased to know I'll spare you reading through section 66G. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to direct you to a couple of things in that section that you might find of value. Like, this is actually going down fairly well. I'm, I'm quite enjoying this. James, good to see you. Okay. Chattels, things, cannot be the subject of a 66G order. But, as we're going to learn a bit later, chattels, or things, can be the subject of a Section 36A order. So, a lot of you will be better real property lawyers than I am, but you can imagine a piece of land where there are some fixtures, fittings, pieces of apparatus or whatever, and in fact, we're going to get to an example later where there's some jewellery, some diamonds, um, and this sort of thing. So your land element is captured by 66G, and your chattels element, things, uh, is captured by 36A. So 66G doesn't do chattels, but don't worry, because now you're a clever lawyer in the trustees for sale space. You know that 36A is going to look after that for you. Um, there's a fairly little point about the right of survivorship, Right. If you and I are joint owners of Black Acre, of this property, and I die, then congratulations to you because you now own it solely. Because right? joint ownership, I die, it's all yours. If we were tenants in common and each had a one-half share and I die, then you keep your one-half share and my one-half share falls into my estate to be dealt with through my will or well, pursuant to the rules of intestacy, actually, in my case, I think I need to get on to getting my will drafted, but, but that's another issue. Um, the right of survivorship in relation to 66G becomes relevant because if you and I are joint owners, which is to say the type of owners where if I die, you get everything, if you die, I get everything, then the moment the 66G proceedings are commenced, your rights pursuant to 66G, so your rights to the sale proceeds from that trustees for sale trust, my rights to those sale proceeds from the trustees for sale trust fall into our respective estates. That might sound a bit fiddly. 
and I'll explain it a different way that is not the technical legal position, but we can think of it along the lines of saying, despite the fact we are joint owners, in relation to the right of survivorship, it's kind of like we transform into 50-50 tenants in common. If we die, or if one of us dies, after the 66G proceedings are commenced. If that made your brain fall out, don't worry. We're going to put some meat on these bones, as I say, as we progress. Who can the trustees be? Right, if we're talking about uh, the identity of the possible trustees for the sale trust, we can have one corporation alone. But what we see most regularly is two natural persons. You can have two to four natural persons, or you can have a combo of a corporation and a natural person as well. You can't have just one natural person. Um, If an application for a sale trust is opposed on the basis it should be a partition, there are different requirements. We're not going to dive into it too deeply now. But in short, there are notice requirements relevant and there are other things you have to turn your mind to. Okay. So what I say we've just learned is that the apparently simple 66G mechanism where we were owners, we're not owners, someone knew we're the owners, they got to sell it and give us the money. Well, it's just a tiny bit more complicated than that. There's this really useful 2018 decision where uh, Justice Ward, uh, Chief Justice Ward, I should say, uh, this is Myers and Clark, um, Supreme Court of New South Wales 1029. This is at paragraph 85, um, where she goes through setting out some of these relevant, uh, <laughs> relevant principles in relation to 66G. And what she says, rightly, respectfully, is... Uh, that the power to appoint trustees pursuant to 66G is discretionary, but the entitlement to an order, she agrees with the case law she reviews, is almost as of right. Which is to say, put another way, if you are a real co-owner and you seek a 66G order, it is really likely you've got a strong chance that that order is going to be made. There's no jurisdiction to refuse to make a 66G order on the basis of hardship or tough times. So that means that um, an argument of, oh, it would cause me problems if this property were to be sold. Well, I'm afraid that doesn't really stand in the way of a 66G order being made. The three things that really can stand in the way are if there's a relevant proprietary right, if there's a contractual right, or if there's a fiduciary obligation. But aside from those examples, if someone wants a 66G order, they are pretty much going to get it. Now, where do the legal costs of a 66G application end up? HKH solicitors, thanks for joining us. Gun property lawyers, hopefully this chat brings you some value. Um, if a 66G application is brought on and it's run through the court, and ex-Pujak, hello there, um, I'm being asked what whiskey tonight, a fairly boring, I think what's ha- what happens with the okay whiskey producers is that they have their base level whiskey and then they 
put some weird name and then charge an extra $20 a bottle for some marginally better whiskey. This is, uh, this is fine. This is fun. This is fine. It's the Founders Reserve Glenlivet single, single malt, blah, blah, blah. It's fine. Thank you for asking. What whiskey for you, Dill C, um, uh, would be interesting. But sorry, I shouldn't get too distracted with these interesting and excellent comments. Um, and I shouldn't say mean things because I just found out it's a favourite of Michael's in the comments there. So, so I withdraw that. I withdraw that mean comment unreservedly. Michael, I owe you a Glenlivet. All right. Um, there are a couple of other just points while we're in the sort of the legal phase of the chat. Remember, we're going to talk legal stuff, then examples, then practical stuff. While we're talking about the legal stuff. Um, there is an obligation on the trustees for sale to consult with the beneficiaries of the sale trust. That makes sense. So remember, we stopped owning it. Now we're beneficiaries. And there are new trustees in. Those new trustees are obliged to consult with us, obliged to seek our views, um, but they are not bound by those views. I hope that makes sense. Oh, I'm pretty sure that makes sense. It certainly does in 66H of the Conveyancing Act if you want to see it explained in a more effective way. Um, 66I of the Conveyancing Act, in short, allows things like set-offs to be made if you or I actually want to buy the property. And CLDP, that's my cousin Camilla, who's an architect. And Molly, who's doing... Maybe she's doing planning law at... Oh, I've forgotten where you're working at the moment, Molly. I think you're at Minters, but in any case. Um, if one of the beneficiaries of the sale trust uh, wants to buy the property, then that purchase price that would have otherwise been paid can be um, dealt with by way of set-off. So if the property is being sold for 10 million bucks and that beneficiary would have otherwise got 5 million bucks, but... Your net of whatever the costs are, then that benefit that she or he or it or they might have taken can be applied to the purchase price that they would have uh, otherwise paid in certain circumstances. That's 66i. We don't need to spend um, as long uh, talking about it as I just did, but it's a relevant one if you're advising one of the beneficiaries of a sale trust. I'm going to have a sip of this. I'm interested to know what you're drinking, if anything, what you're eating, if anything. Let me hear about it. We next turn to the question of who is going to be appointed as trustees for sale, right? So if you and I are knocked off as legal owners and we've got someone else coming in, well, who are those people going to be? How does the court choose what people are the right people to become the new legal owners of the property? Well, um, I see I've got a question down here that I'll come to in a moment. I'll just finish off that rhetorical point if that's all right. Um, the court tends to prefer the uh, trustees that are the the trustees that are preferred by the party that owns the largest portion of the property. So your two thirds owner, your seventy five percent owner, they're going to have a heavier say. The trustees who get appointed should be independent as far as possible. The court's going to consider their skill, experience, and expertise. They'll do a bit of a LinkedIn stalk or a CV review or however you want to put it. And the court's also going to turn its attention to the best value for money. Hello there to everyone joining us. Hello there, Robbie. Hello there, Richard. I've got a question here that I will come to now. Ha 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 ha. This is a good question. 
So Jay Bridget asks about the 66H obligation. So if we turn to 66H of the Conveyancing Act, there is an obligation of these trustees to consult with the beneficiaries. And that's a non-binding consultation. Trustees have to go ahead and have a chat. Uh, And what Jay Bridget asks is, um, does it extend to things like uh, property dollars, dollars, dollars? The short point is yes. The longer point is because the views of the beneficiaries aren't binding, um, the categories are not relevantly restricted. So the section is very long, and I'm just going to read the relevant extract um, to assist Jay Bridget here, is that um, so far as practicable, right, the trustees are going to consult the beneficiaries and sell sorry, going to consult them and then shall, so far as consistent with the general interest of the trust, give effect to those wishes. So the rule about consultation is not restricted to any subject matter. So, Kaylin, I'm just trying to wave back at you. I'm trying to push the wave button here, but that's not working. Um, Jay Bridget, I, I hope that's not too vague. The consultation obligation is not restricted to any certain subject matter. That's probably the short point. Hope that helps. Okay. Um Let's get back to housekeeping because, as you might remember, we are speaking tonight about 66G trustees for sale. The talk has three components, law, practical examples, and things you might think about when the rubber hits the road um, in your practice. Uh, we've just finished talking about the law, so that was the hardest bit. Uh, so congratulations. Jay Bridget, thanks for that thumbs up. I will take it that that question was answered. We are now going to turn to some practical examples Uh, to help us. Hello there, Kaylin Shaw. Good to see you. Okay, because we're in the second phase of the talk. uh, And what I say is that there's not a lot of interesting law, uh, not a lot of value in us spending a lot of time thinking about when will or won't a 66G order be made. And the reason for that is one that you could tell me now, uh, because as you know, it is supremely likely that if a co-owner seeks 66G orders, seeks to get a trustee for sale appointed, basically it's going to happen. And so we're not going to spend much time thinking about when will or won't a 66G trustee be appointed. We're going to turn to um, issues that sort of arise that might be thought of as satellite issues around the appointment of 66G trustees. It's even going to be fun. Okay. Um, this is a decision called O'Day and O'Day. It's a 2019 decision, Supreme Court of New South Wales, 1560. Right, we've got two brothers. They are tenants in common, so they're 50-50 owners. They're not joint owners. They're 50-50 owners of a block of units in Bondi. One brother uh, applies for 66G Uh, orders, uh, which is to say gets trustees for sale appointed uh, and then promptly dies, but nonetheless, uh, his entitlement uh, pursuant to the sale trust remains. So I'll just treat it um, as we've got a dead brother and we've got a living brother and we've got these trustees appointed, right? And our living brother uh, attempts to, and indeed succeeds in, um, entering into an agreement with the trustees for sale to buy the property 
Price is about six point three million. This is in twenty eighteen, and our living brother <laughs> makes this offer, but the conveyance doesn't go well, and there are notices to complete issued, and for reasons that a conveyancer would understand better than I would, the whole thing falls apart, and our living brother does not end up buying the property. The trustees for sale forced to go back to market. What they do is they find another purchaser. Uh, that other purchaser purchases for about 5.8 million. So there's a bit of a discount there from what Living Brother would have paid. But in any case, the conveyance succeeds. Now the trustees for sale are sitting on a chunk of cash and they are thinking about what the next steps might be. Now, uh, first brother, dead, <laughs> dead brother, or his legal personal representatives, his estate, if we put it loosely, um, say, look, Living Brother over here uh, caused all these costs to be incurred in relation to this failed conveyance. And Living Brother's share of what, um, what we're going to get from the sale trust should be reduced because he caused all these costs to be incurred. And so those costs should be visited upon his share only of the proceeds of the sale trust and not on my share, not on the deceased's share. And what the court said in relation to that was, no, that's wrong. And broadly speaking, that was for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, if the court was to agree to that, it would be essentially making a summary finding about that being the correct position when the court didn't have all the evidence in front of it. And frankly, it wasn't really the arena to ventilate that issue with respect. Secondly, um, the rights that the deceased's estate was arguing about weren't really rights as between co-owners and really it's only those rights between co-owners. I paid more rates than you. I made more improvements than you. They're the sort of arguments that you ventilate when you're adjusting entitlements uh, or <laughs> in relation to the proceeds of a 66G sale trust. And then thirdly, and probably most obviously, um, if you had uh, a little time to think about it, the claim in relation to money spent um, or in relation to any problems with this conveyance was actually the trustee's claim. And so the deceased estate, dead brother, is just a bit of an onlooker, an interested onlooker, but is not really in dispute with living brother. The dispute is between living brother and the trustees rather than between living brother and dead brother. And so what the court says is because of all of that, we are not going to adjust living brother's entitlement down. Now, uh, as part of this litigation, the trustees for sale uh, turn to Section 63 of the Trustee Act and they seek judicial advice. And this is something that, as many of you know, um, allows trustees to approach the court and seek advice that they are entitled to rely on in relation to the administration of a trust and, and some other issues. And the advice they seek is, they say, look, hey, living, living brother has flagged this claim against us. And it's a vague claim, and we don't know what it is. And so, so I'm going to have another sip of this, which is to say another glass of this. Um, anyone who's having a sip of anything, let me know in the comments. Well, that was a satisfying sound. I'm going to hold that near the microphone. Okay. Uh, what the trustees say is, look, living, living brother has flagged this claim. Um, we don't quite know uh, what it is. We've got couple of million dollars in our solicitor's trust account and we want the court's approval to hang on to, thank you Mick, um, to hang on to 
um, a certain significant amount of this money in relation to any legal costs that might be incurred with some further disputes uh, that we might have down the road. And what the court says, in short, after seeing some evidence of the possible claims that might be ventilated uh, and seeing some cost estimates and these sorts of things, says, yes, that's fine. And so the court advises that the trustees would be justified to hang on to 500 grand. And so that concludes our adventure uh, in downtown Bondi. Uh, Tam's having an apple juice. Tam, I raise, uh, I raise a, a whiskey to your very good health. Whiskey with no E. I've never known... I always try to sound cool by going whisk, open parentheses, E, close parentheses, then the Y, to be like, I know there's two different kinds, when in reality, I'm not sure about the difference between whiskey with an E and whiskey without an E, but I'm, I'm sure some of you know that, and you can tell me now if you'd like. Molly's having a G&T. Molly, fantastic. Leaving the Chardonnay behind for a G&T. Love it. All right. If, as we've learned, um, a 66G order is very likely to be made, um, if someone wants one, well, let's turn our attention to when will one fail? And in order to answer this question, we're going to turn to a decision called Sakar and Sakar, that's S-U-K-K-A-R, 2019 decision in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, 691. Um, as I say, as we've learned, if an application is prepared properly, it's going to succeed. So when's it going to fail? Let's go through the facts here. Now, mum and dad are co-owners of a property. Son lends money to mum, which he secures by way of mortgage. And what son says is that that makes me an encumbrancer. Hello there, the legal plug. Great to see you. What son says is that makes me an encumbrancer. Um, And so um, that uh, is a basis for the making of a 66G order and I now seek that order, right? Uh, we've got some great comments coming here. Mix explaining the difference between whiskey with an E and without. I'm not going to read that right now. Mick, I'm giving a CLE, my dude. I'm, I'm right in the middle of one. Um, Dill C is drinking an 18-year-old Glenlivet. Um, you've, uh, you've eclipsed me there. And what's up to the legal plug? Good times. And so the son says, hey, I've got this loan secured by way of mortgage. I'm an encumbrancer and I want to cause trustees for sale to be appointed so the property can be sold so that I can realize my interest via mum that I've secured by way of mortgage. And so what mum said, um, in essence, about this mortgage was quite interesting. And we're going to dive into the facts a little bit so we can understand it. Um, The mother executed the loan and associated documents in front of a lawyer, and it included a declaration about having received independent legal advice. But um, both mother and son have these credibility problems. It's difficult for the court to really agree with either of them unless there's some independent third-party document or something like that confirming what they've said because they both uh, strike the court as quite unreliable. In essence... Oh, and sorry, son's a lawyer. And mum and son have this weird relationship that is sort of um, warm and loving, but there's also elements of distrust and both allege that the other treated them badly and were manipulative in some way. And uh, as Molly suggests here in the comment, mum says, how dare you to son? Uh, This is probably going to be an example of that. Um, So um, when the um, son is pressed 
Thank you for these very kind comments. What's up, Emma? Um, uh, thank you, Shane. You have a good week too. Um, when the son is pressed, he's actually unable to identify any benefit that mum takes pursuant to this transaction. And the court finds that the mother's decision to enter into it was actually the result of the influential position that son enjoys over mum. And clicking through the gears and the relevant law, the court says, well, that influence was in fact undue influence. It amounts to duress. That was unfair in the circumstances. And pursuant to the relevant (coughs) legislation, Sorry, I'll just do some branded content for my employer as I have a sip of water. Chamberlain's, what's up? These things are hard to drink out of, but we're still a very good firm. Um, The contract is found to be unfair, which means that pursuant to the legislation, the agreement is set aside as void. Who cares in the context of 66G? Remember, this is what we're talking about. Well, the answer is the court. Um, Because what the court says is, well, the mortgage that gave you a right as an encumbrancer to seek a 66G uh, trustee for sale appointment um, is void. And so Sun has no basis for seeking the 66G orders. And so the 66G application fails. And if we turn back to our original question, when will a 66G application fail? And the answer to that, as we found in this case, is when the applicant doesn't have the right to seek those orders. Okay. Let's turn to a 2018 decision called Lisi and Fono. We've got, hello there, Sanpreet Rai. Oh, woo. Bloody hell, we're saying nice things in the comment here. The comments here. I'm going to read them verbatim for the, for the podcast. Emma just wanted to say, enjoying going live. Emma's a law student. And last time you were here on a live, we were talking about the Corporations Act. Oh, sick. Well, you're super welcome, Emma. Um, hopefully, if you're struggling with the Conveyancing Act, um, <laughs> tonight might bring a bit of value in respect of a couple of small sections. That's very kind. Thank you, and you're welcome. All right. So we've got 66G um, proceedings that are commenced in relation to co-owned land. And you and I both know what happens when 66G proceedings are commenced. They succeed, more or less 100%. Gosh, these are very nice comments, guys. Stop saying such nice stuff. I'm going to get distracted by my giant ego. Um, Before the final hearing, the matter settled uh, because um, both parties were, it would appear, well advised. And both parties said, look, someone wants a 66G order, they're going to get it. But the only thing that remains outstanding was the question of legal costs. And Will I Am's joining us. Um, After the fall from relevance of the Black Eyed Peas, it's amazing to have um, someone of his stature sitting here learning about a piece of New South Wales property legislation. But here we find ourselves. So what the plaintiff says is the plaintiff says, hey, look, the usual position is that um, all parties should uh, have their legal costs paid out of the trust funds, right? Trustees should sell the property, get the money in, and all parties, look, we've all been acting reasonably, we should get our legal costs paid out of the trust funds. What the defendant says is no, each party should bear their own costs. And um, one of the reasons the court agrees with what the defendant says to give away the ending is, 
that the plaintiff had put on. Oh, good day there, Mr. Blundell. Drew's here. Is that the plaintiff um, had put on evidence? Gosh, guys, these nice comments are really going to go to my head. I, I'm not. I'm not really up for this, but it's Harry's. You're so welcome, and very, very kind of you to say that. That's very, very good of you. Um, one of the reasons the court agrees with the defendant that each party should bear their own costs is that the court says, look, the plaintiff put on this huge affidavit, all this evidence, incurred all these costs, uh, putting on this affidavit, putting on all this evidence, when all the plaintiff was seeking was a 66G order. Now, as you know, and as I know, hello there, Sean T. Greenwood, as you and I both know, um, if you want a 66G order, you're basically going to get one. And in circumstances where the plaintiff wasn't seeking to adjust any of the beneficiary's entitlements pursuant to the sale trust, um, there was no reason for such a voluminous affidavit to be served. And so the court finds that that um, evidence was unreasonable in circumstances. And so the costs incurred in relation to them were um, unreasonable in the circumstances and so that each party should bear their own legal costs. And what we are invited to conclude from that is that the legal costs of the plaintiff might have been a little bit higher than the legal costs of the defendant. Okay, a bit more housekeeping, and it's repetitive for some of us. Team, we're recording. Um, so this is going up on the podcast, coffee and a case note, if that brings you any value. So if you came in late, missed anything, or need to step out, um, then that's the way you've got to go. Um, nothing like paying someone else to sell your own property for you, says Dilk. Um, that's the vibe. Oh, Andrew's apologizing for missing the start. Don't worry, Andrew. Uh, it's a fairly pedestrian whiskey, so, you know, it's only okay. Idahobo, what's up? Thanks for joining us. It's very kind, everyone joining in. So, that bit of admin is we're recording for the podcast. Uh, it's called Coffee and a Case Note. You can go find it on whatever podcast provider you like if you missed anything. Uh, and I'd like to hear what you're drinking. If you want to chuck it in the comments, if you're having a nice pot of green tea, um, if you're having a Singapore sling, uh, or whatever's going on, I'm interested. Okay, so we're talking about legal costs, uh, and we are interested to know uh, about when will indemnity costs uh, be ordered in relation to a 66G application. And as you might know, indemnity costs or solicitor client costs are a more generous form of legal costs order. Um, often, and the name will give it away, the cost order made is an ordinary costs order, and that is in respect of costs that are reasonable. An indemnity cost order or a solicitor client cost order is in respect of all costs aside from unreasonable costs. Does that make sense? So ordinary costs are, you've got to, you've got to explain why they're reasonable. Indemnity costs are you get everything except stuff the other side has to say is unreasonable. That's the theory in any case. And so indemnity is what you want or solicit a client, same thing, is what you want. And so in this case, we say, right, how can we get those? We've got another dispute between a mother and a son, I'm sorry to say. Now, the mother is subject to a financial management order. And what a financial management order is, as some of you may know, is something like a combination between uh, an attorney and a tutor. It is someone who is the legal personal representative of the managed person. And so we've got the managed person, who's the mum, and we've got the son. And mum and son are co-owners, 
and mum's financial manager says, I want to sell this property. Son says, nah. So, what happens? Hmm. The financial manager says, um, and look, I'm sorry to get interrupted because Drew0913 in the comments here is regularly appointed as a 66G trustee. So anything he has to say about 66G is super important and worth reading. So I'm just going to do that. Andrew's enjoying a margarita with his mates. Fantastic. 66G, mechanism to break a deadlock. Yes. A good trustee is there to facilitate that. Yes. Guys, hit up Andrew. Appoint him as a 66G trustee. He'll do a good job. I'm happy for you to take that endorsement directly from me. Okay. Let's get back to the dispute between mum and uh, the dispute between her son, which is to say the dispute between mum's financial manager and the son, remembering they both co-own this property. The financial manager wants to sell it. The son resists. That's one. The financial manager resolves to attempt to sell it. And the son goes to NCAT. G'day, Hannah. Good to see you. And the son goes to NCAT to review the financial manager's decision to do that. So that's a challenge raised. Then um, the financial manager again moves to sell the property. The plaintiff resists on the basis there are funds elsewhere, but he's unable to provide evidence of these mysterious funds. Then the third attempt is the financial manager seeks a 66G application. And I'm not going to say it on record for the podcast, but there's a comment made here. There are two comments made here that I strongly agree with. And for anyone listening to the podcast in future, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what I'm agreeing with. Okay. Um, so there's this third attempt by the financial manager to sell the property and a third time of the son standing in the way saying, right, we can get this money from elsewhere, but not really giving evidence of where elsewhere is or what's going on. And the short point <laughs> is um, that um, the 66G order is made and the 66G order is made because, as you know and I know, if someone wants a 66G order, they're going to get one. Um, and uh, what mum says by her financial manager is, well, I want indemnity costs. And in short, the court says yes. And the reason the court says yes is because the son's uh, challenge of the transaction first up, challenge in NCAT and initial resistance to a 66G are all found to be unreasonable, such that um, an order for indemnity costs uh, is justified. Uh, yes, cleanly shaven, Hannah. Thank you kindly for noticing. Uh, very, <laughs> It's very kind. Um, and I might just hit you with a postscript of that decision. Son, uh, if you already didn't like Son, you're, you're going you're gonna to enjoy this. Son is actually the executor of Dad's estate. And what Son says is I'm going to be indemnified from dad's estate in relation to this indemnity cost order. So I'm not going to have to pay it. Dad's estate is. Uh, and the court says that um, that's... Uh, <laughs> the, co- the court observes that in passing and makes no comment about it. But uh, it is an intriguing uh, postscript as we take a look at it. All right. Bloody hell, we're going, we're going in on the sun. Um, <laughs> let's move on to our next decision before 
Um, <laughs> before we get too controversial, don't worry, guys. This one's about a fixed sum cost order. So it's going to be nice and boring. No one's going to get hot under the collar. It's a really short one. Um, Hundy and Turner, another 2019 Supreme Court of New South Wales, decision 1881. Uh, our plaintiff is actually a bankruptcy trustee, and our bankruptcy trustee plaintiff wants to liquidate the real property that forms part of the bankrupt estate, gets the orders, and for reasons best known to the other co-owner solicitor, the other co-owner agrees to the 66G and agrees to pay the costs of the plaintiff. Uh, Maybe, Hannah, to answer that question, I'm not going to go record it, but the answer to that is maybe, if he's a bankruptcy trustee, he comes out smelling of... Um, smelling of roses in this one. Um, in essence, um, due to some canny negotiation from the person uh, being referred to in the comments here, we get our respondents to agree to pay the costs. Hello there, Gaz. What's up in Wales? Hope you're going well. Um, the uh, bankruptcy trustee chases uh, payment of these fees, and the other side is uh, unresponsive, to put it gently. In short, the applicant uh, succeeds in getting a fixed sum cost order. And the reason you should care about getting a fixed sum cost order is that cost assessment is the normal process when you are the beneficiary of a cost order and in other circumstances as well. And that takes a very long time. And so there's a considerable benefit for the court. Sorry, there's a considerable benefit to the person with the benefit of the cost order getting, yep, you get X dollars right now, rather than having to go through the process of assessment. And in this case, the uh, bankruptcy trustee uh, was successful. And Hannah got a fixed sum cost order this week. And I raise my glass to you, Hannah, with the greatest of respect. Congratulations. Okay, let us talk about, I was hoping to give you guys an early mark. We've only got 16 minutes to go. I'm not sure how we're going. What's everyone drinking? Nothing. Everyone's drinking nothing. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I'm drinking alone here. It's so good. You guys are showing such restraint. All right. Um, Grosh and Knight's 2018 decision, 1365, New South Wales Supreme Court. We've got two co-owners in a block of land. Um, oh, Hannah's having a rosé. Good stuff. One co-owner moves to Victoria after the relationship breaks down, and one co-owner moves to jail. Uh, And so we've got these two co-owners who are now having an argument about the appointment of a 66G trustee. Getting a bit of color in your cheeks. I am. It's warm in here. Anyway, I shouldn't shouldn't get distracted by these comments. It is hot in here. This was a jumper that my mum gave me recently. Um, And it's super duper warm. I'll just get shamed about the color of my face successfully and we'll get back to it. Right. We have got our Victorian co-owner who is making the 66G application and we've got our imprisoned co-owner who is resisting it. Now, our imprisoned co-owner is resisting but without the benefit of a solicitor and that means, with the greatest of respect, that it is marginally more difficult for him to run his case. And uh, in any case, the matter comes on for hearing And there is a dispute about a number of things. Firstly, our imprisoned co-owner resists the appointment of a 66G trustee. And as you and I both know well, the prospects of doing that are not strong. And 
in essence, he fails. The court resolves that it's, appoint, uh, that it's appropriate that a 66G trustee be appointed. Now, secondly... G'day, Andrew. Secondly, um, there are applications from both co-owners that they want their entitlements adjusted. So what our Victorian co-owner says is, hey, I made mortgage payments. I made payments in relation to the rates. The imprisoned uh, party, the imprisoned co-owner occupied the property. And for all of these reasons, my entitlement should be adjusted up and the imprisoned co-owner's entitlement should be adjusted down. What the imprisoned co-owner says is, no, 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 I made all these improvements, did all this maintenance work and achieved all this stuff, and my entitlement should be adjusted up, and the Victorian co-owner's entitlement should be adjusted down. And what the court did was track through the law relating to allowances in some depth. And in short, what the court did was find that trustees should be appointed, but said that neither party, and I'm quoting directly from the judgment, neither party has presented a full and adequate case in relation to these allowances. And so the court, in essence, and with respect, kicks the can down the road in relation to making any adjustments up or down. And so here what we learn is that the court is able to surgically extract the appointment of a 66G trustee, and then leave the question of who is entitled to what and in what proportion uh, to another day. Okay. Um, as I might have said earlier, then the comments are going off with um, Andrew and Hannah doing some work together, and it's really interesting to read. So if I seem slightly distracted, it's because there's interesting stuff going on, but I should come back and focus on this one. Because our um, talk today is divided into three sections, as you might remember. Firstly, we spoke about the law, the crunchy bits. Uh, we are in the middle now, or towards the end, of speaking about some litigated examples. Man, it is hot in here. Um, and we will then, I'll just make a couple of quick practical comments for some things to think about in practice. All right. Uh, this is a decision of Chow and Chow's 2015 decision of Jeff Lindsay, um, Supreme Court of New South Wales 1347. And I'll just disclose at this stage that I acted for the trustees after their appointment. So I have no involvement in this at all, um, but I acted for these um, trustees for sale once appointed. Right. A dispute arrives between, arises between three brothers, and essentially the dispute is about the proceeds of their mother's estate, which is of some size and value. One of the assets is an apartment with an amazing harbour view and penthouse and all this stuff. And one of the assets or some of the assets are very valuable or not jewellery. And there are a lot of arguments about the value of this jewellery. And um, the question I've posed when thinking about is who should be the trustees for the sale of diamonds? Two important parts there. One is diamonds. So normally we've been talking about land. And remember, 66G relates to land. This is hard. <laughs> but 36A of the Conveyancing Act allows trustees to be appointed in relation to chattels. So there is... Did I get a piece? There is... 
I don't know what a piece is, a gun. So I'm being asked by Hannah in the comments, did I get a piece? No, I, I don't own any firearms. Um, there is uh, a question initially um, about rights. How do we appoint trustees to chattels? Jewelry, jewelry. Um, but um, remember section 36A of the Conveyancing Act can solve these things. So uh, who's going to be the trustee in relation to diamonds? The diamonds question uh, is answered by Section 36A of the Conveyancing Act. Uh, and the only diamonds I have here are the diamonds that are falling from my mouth, as you can hear and see. Um, the other point uh, that may in fact be relevant uh, here to Drew0913 is the question of who is going to be appointed as the trustees for sale. And here there was quite an interesting comparison where um, there was a um, competing set of trustees put up by two competing sides. One set of proposed trustees were what we might call um, insolvency practitioners. We might call them external administration experts. These are the sort of wonderful people who are appointed as administrators, receiver managers, liquidators, bankruptcy trustees, these sort of people. And the other sort of people were what we might call property experts. So we have sort of uh, insolvency or external administration experts versus sort of property, transaction-y, real estate-y sort of experts. And so there's a balance to be struck between these two. And what the court finds is that um, it needs to do the apples and oranges comparison between... Um, on the one hand, the property experts, and on the other hand, the insolvency or external administration experts. And what the court says is, look, this is an apples and oranges comparison. What I say is that the outcome of this calculation could be different on any given day because it was finely balanced. But the court, um, in considering very closely the nature of the assets and the appropriate appointment, comes down on the side of the property experts as opposed to the external administration or insolvency experts. Okay, somehow uh, we got to the end of our litigated examples just there. I've got a few minutes left to make some practical suggestions. Housekeeping stuff, um, I'm recording all of this, so it is going to be on the <coughs> podcast. The podcast is called Coffee and a Case Note. Uh, it's a pretty good podcast. You should go subscribe. It's fun. Um, that's the end of the admin. Oh, I want to know what everyone's drinking. That's good fun, but let's keep moving. What should you be doing in practice? Now, um, the prima facie position is um, every time we seek to get a 66G trustee appointed, we succeed, right? So we might say, well, um, it's pretty obvious that uh, we ought to go and uh, get that trustee appointed. It's pretty obvious that um, we are not going to incur many legal costs in that process because, as we've learned, we don't need lengthy um, affidavits. We don't need 18-page affidavits, which actually doesn't strike me as that long, but that's another point to raise for another time. Um, what we need is to show that we're a co-owner, show that we can't agree, get the trustees appointed. So it might feel like a quick and cheap exercise. Now, what I invite you to conclude from our review today is that yes, the appointment of the trustees is pretty quick, pretty cheap, 
but there are logistical issues that hang in the air, such as the pieces of satellite litigation that can linger around. I shouldn't read these comments. The pieces of satellite litigation that can linger around, uh, potentially following the appointment of 66G trustees. Um, What we also find is that um, you ought not underestimate the fees that trustees might charge. They're going to be extracted out. And with the greatest of respect, and I suspect I can get some agreement in the comments, um, it's rare that a 66G trustee will undercharge for her or his work. And so your and my initial thought that, hey, 66G, that's a quick answer. We're not going to spend much money getting them appointed. They're going to come in um, and um, they are going to sell this thing. We're going to get some money. We're going to get out of here. Yes, broadly speaking, that's right in that the litigation to get the trustee appointed will not be particularly challenging or demanding, but that there can be um, satellite issues that arise from that that are worth bearing in mind more broadly speaking. And some respectful agreement coming from uh, Drew0913 means more to me than uh, you guys can imagine. Now, um, if we're thinking about Drew0913's potential role in assisting you and your clients, um, I just wanted to focus quickly on the comparison between um, a receiver-manager type appointment, which is what we might see in, for example, a partnership dispute versus a trustee for sale sort of appointment. And so if you were to get someone like Drew0913 involved with helping your clients out of a sticky situation and they were in partnership to take that example, um, it may be that your first port of call will be say, great, I know what happens with partnerships, you got to receive a manager. Now, what I say is that if you were to appoint those same people, that same person in the role of trustee for sale, um, then that person would be more focused on the task of realizing an asset and getting the money in as opposed to potentially getting into a real scrap about the nature of the property itself. Uh, And these things can get ugly, as many of you know. And so it may well be in your client's interest notwithstanding that the same person may be involved to get the nature of that appointment to be a more bespoke sort of solution to the dispute that your client might be in. Uh, Record keeping, always important, especially if you're going to argue about rates and argue about this sort of stuff Um, because they can often be contract or estoppel sort of issues that pop up that I'm not going to spend too long on because I have very, very little time. Team, I'm going to say thank you so, so much for your company. I've got another minute and 40 seconds or so. So if you would like to ask any questions, why don't I end this live now and then start a new one instantly? Let's do that. Thanks so much for your company on this one. I'm going to end it right now. Hear from you in a sec if you'd like. Okay, Um, team, we just got out of a literally one hour live session. Um, If you'd like to hear what it was all about, cool. 
Um, it's all up on the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note, or it will be in a little while. I'm popping into this live now. I'm going to reiterate all this, but that's fine. I'm popping into this live now to give you all the opportunity to ask any questions or to engage in any more uh, trash talk. Mick, you're off to have a good night. Michael, thanks so much. Um, oh, this is all extremely kind, you guys. But I thought I'd pop in now, firstly, to give you guys the opportunity because there are some great chats going on in the comments um, uh, and all these very kind comments. You're super, super welcome, guys. Really, really appreciate your time and your company. Um, if anyone had any questions, now is the time. If you could push the question mark button down the bottom, I would be grateful. Molly, what is up? So if there are any questions, if you could push the question mark button down the bottom. Um, if uh, you're interested in a recap of everything we covered tonight, I'll be uploading it to the podcast in audio form in about the next 45 minutes, hour, something like that. Uh, and if you had any comments or questions, now's the time. Oh, g'day, Huck. This is good fun. Uh, Huck, you'll be very disappointed with me. I'm afraid this is it. Um, but it was a gift and, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, so if there are questions, let me know. If there are comments, let me know. Uh, and we got a question. I enjoy the trash talk at the end. Oh, only, only Victorians would enjoy the trash talk at the end. Oh, how's that for trash talk, James? <laughs> um, so, so, so there's some trash talk for you. Um, team, uh, well, let's get personal. Um, I really enjoy these and it really means a lot to me that you guys take some time out of your day. So I'm getting lots of nice thank yous here. Um, and have I ridden the Chamberlain's yellow bike? I work for a law firm called Chamberlain's. Um, we have a slogan that says, we're with you. And because I'm still in the honeymoon period, I'm like, it's not just a slogan. We are with you. We're with our clients every step of the way. And I actually hugely believe it. Uh, so you can make fun of me uh, for that point. And we have this tandem bike and it's this quite evocative metaphor of guys, don't worry, we're with you because one or the other of us are going to be on this tandem bike. And I actually really enjoy the metaphor a lot. So I can understand that you can make fun of our firm to be earnest, for being earnest about stuff like that. And that's cool. And that's your prerogative. And I support that. But I'm actually hugely into it. And I think it's really cool. Um, I've got a couple of job applications coming in. Apparently, we're with you is a bit more... Um, is a bit more resonant than um, <laughs> than I might have heard. Um, anyone talking about uh, job applications who know my email address or how to get me on DMs, you can get me on DMs. Um, the team, I'm inclined to close the session there. Really grateful for your time. If you missed anything, check the podcast, Coffee at a Case Note. Thank you very, very much and hope you have a great evening. This Cheeky Whiskey is for you. I really appreciate you and I'm grateful and I'm sorry for getting really hot. It's really warm in here. Anyway, talk soon. Cheers. Bye.